This is Andrew Davis, author of Town Inc., Grow Your Business, Save Your Town, Leave Your Legacy, and you, my friend, are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we're joined by Andrew Davis, and we're going to talk about his new book, Town Inc. Grow Your Business, Save Your Town, Leave Your Legacy. Andrew Davis is one of the most entertaining speakers in marketing. His creativity, passion, and enthusiasm are contagious. And I know because I've seen him speak. His 20-year career has taken him from local television to the Today Show. He's worked for the Muppets in New York, written for Charles Corral, and marketed for tiny startups as well as Fortune 500 brands. His novel combinations of old ideas that leverage new technology have been tapped by the Obama administration and Russian media moguls. In 2001, Andrew co-founded Tipping Point Labs, where he changed the way publishers think and how brands market their products. He's also the best-selling author of Brandscaping, Unleashing the Power of Partnerships. Jay Baer, author, keynoter, marketing thought leader, and marketing book podcast guest, has said this (laughs) about Andrew. If Malcolm Gladwell had a better head for business, he'd be Andrew Davis. Andrew, congratulations on Town Inc. and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Douglas. I'm excited about being on this. You have such a great list of guests on this show. It's an honor to be on it. Thanks so well, much. Well, it just got better. And uh, I have seen you speak. I saw you speak a couple years at the Inbound Conference right after Brandscaping came out. And oh, great. Ta- I was in the room. I didn't answer the questions quick enough to get a copy of your book, uh, which, you know, <laughs> still bothers me. But your enthusiasm was great. And just one trivial point. It was the first time I'd ever seen the Prezi software ever used for a presentation. And several people asked you at the end, like, what is that you're using? And you go, oh, it's this thing called Prezi, which is, anyway, that was cutting cutting edge. It's it's usually the first question I still get asked, which is pretty amazing. Oh, wow. Well, and it was also a bunch of agency people in that particular presentation. So you know how we are about tools and and things like that. Yes, give me a new tool. So I have... You know, been a big fan, and I listened to, amongst other things, an interview that Todd Wheatland did on his Pivot podcast with you. And oh, I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna have a link to that in the show notes. And in it, he talked about you, you guys talked about the fact that you were a child actor. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, just so uh, interesting. And you even to get your job at the Jim Henson Company, you wrote a letter once a month until you were hired three years later. 
Is that true? Yes. yes. It was 36 letters. Yeah. I used to actually, this was in the old days before, you know, everybody was using email even. So I was writing these letters and I'd FedEx them. I'd overnight them to <laughs> uh, executives at the Jim Henson company so that they'd have to sign for them and they'd be on the top of their inbox when they got them. Uh, and eventually I got a call from a guy, Peter Van Roden, who said, look, stop sending these letters. Like, I don't have a job for you. <laughs> but you got a reaction. Uh, yeah, I got a reaction. And he's, I said, look, I'll stop sending the letters if you just give me a half hour meeting. He gave me a half hour meeting. And at the end of the meeting, he he hired me as the head of their their uh, workshop as the production manager there. So it, it worked. And I did it again. I don't, I don't know if we talked about this in Todd Wheatland's podcast, but I actually wrote a letter every week, a handwritten letter every week to, uh, to Warren Buffett. Oh, um, yes, you did 20. talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I, it, you know, look, it, it works. <laughs> Persistence, and now I think right. a handwritten letter probably has an even greater impact. And I think you once said on that interview or another one that you've heard that he's read those letters or he's read some. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know when I did that interview, but I actually went. And I, I I ended up meeting him. Oh, um, yeah. So it, did, it essentially October of last year, or maybe it was two years ago. I ended up um, having a half hour meeting with. Warren Buffett to talk about the future of the newspaper industry as a result of, uh, you know, some serendipity and the letters I'd written. So it was really fun. And uh, did he was, ask great you? Experience. Did he ask you to stop sending him letters? Uh, he he inferred that more letters wouldn't help. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> diplomatic fellow. That's yeah, very diplomatic. Smart guy, and I learned a lot talking uh, to him. Yeah, that's that's super. Well. We could talk about all these things you've done, but we're going to get to your to your book. And I have to say, I have an economic development client, so I read this book and I immediately bought a copy, sent it to him, and now I have a <laughs> feeling that he's going to probably buy a copy for everyone on his advisory board as well as the city council, which then made me realize, you know, Andrew Davis knows something. I'm on to you now. <laughs> It's a simple plan. It's like it's kind of a it's kind of a buy it for everyone pyramid scheme. I guess, <laughs> right. It seems. Well, I hope it works. <laughs> I hope it works. Let me start with a with an opening quote here, and then we're going to get into the book. Just a, a, one of many that just jumped out the page at me. Economic development experts have encouraged us to diversify our city's economy. They've fed our fears of the past and told us to avoid relying on even a single industry, let alone highlighting the success of a single company to build their own towns. But they're wrong. So, Andrew, tell us the fascinating journey about how this book came to be and, and who you had in mind when you wrote it. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the book came about as as a result of the like my extensive traveling over the last three years, really. So. So I, you know, I, I sold my agency, Tipping Point Labs, in 2012, and I basically went on, a, you know, an immediate kind of book tour for the book Brandscaping, and that resulted in, you know, lots of other speaking stuff. So over the last three years, I've basically been wandering from town to town in America, and I started realizing that there are some towns that seem to be booming, and they're unbelievably successful, and you feel it when you drive down their main street, everybody's there, and the, the shops are all open, and the cafes are 
busy. And then you'll drive five minutes down the street to another town that looks like it has the exact same potential and it's empty. And the, the, the shops are all boarded up and the office buildings are vacant. And, you know, the, the, the town just seems to be dead. And I wondered what was the difference between the towns that were booming and the other ones that seemed bust, even though they're three minutes away or five minutes apart or 15 minutes down a highway. And, and I started looking into this as I was traveling, and I realized that the towns that seemed to be more successful all had staked their claim. They they basically had some big idea, like we are the you know Warsaw, Indiana is the orthopedic capital of the world. That kind of sign was at the entrance, and I started to wonder if this had real impact, and and started to do some research. So that's how it came about. Um, I, I didn't, I, you know, the the audience for the book really for, for me is not necessarily the economic development you know team or the mayors and city councilors that that uh, run the towns and cities because what i ended up finding is that the business leaders the visionaries in town the people that were very much a part of making the the city or town more successful were the business leaders who just f- decided that they were going to make Warsaw, Indiana, the orthopedic capital of the world, or you know, uh, uh, Hamilton, Missouri, the quick quilting capital of the world? You know, these people built their business and and decided that they'd market the place they do business just as much, if not more, than the business themselves. So, the the audience for the book is really business leaders who who believe uh, they can have a, a huge impact in, in changing their, the place they live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you talk about these being, uh, being the visionaries, and there's one part in the book where you said, if you're reading this book, you're a visionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, you know, people used to ask me when I started talking about this uh, and, you know, kind of aerating the idea, they would say, well, how do you know who the visionaries are? And I said, well, you know, generally, in my experience, the visionaries are either very apparent, everybody knows them, they're the people in town that are movers and shakers, and sometimes they are the economic development experts in Batavia, New York, that, which is the Greek yogurt capital of the world. Their visionary is a guy named Steve Hyde, and he's the run, he runs their, their economic development team. So usually the, you know who it is immediately. Uh, if you don't know who it is you, you, and you start looking for it, it's very easy to find. And if you still can't find one, it means you're the visionary. <laughs> uh, well, you, you pay that off, too. I mean, you show how these people were, I mean, like in uh, the town in Kansas that was hit, uh, Green... oh, Greensburg, Greensburg, yeah, Kansas. Yeah, these were just yeah. two, these weren't two elected officials. These were after the, the tornado hit there, they decided they were going to rebuild and be a sustainable town. That's right. And it was like a one-page yeah. document. That's right. So yeah, Greensburg, Kansas was essentially wiped off the map in 2007. And two weeks after it was wiped off the map, everybody got together in a tent. And these two people, Daniel and Catherine, basically showed up with a one page idea. Let's turn Greensburg into the greenest city on the planet. And uh, everybody got behind it. And, and, you know, less than five years later, they were essentially the greenest city on the planet per capita. You know, it's still a very small town. But if you ever have the chance to go to Greensburg, Kansas, you must go and see the Big Well, the museum they've created for the world's largest hand-dug well, which was originally there, was dug in the late 1800s and early 1900s, is an amazing museum. It's one of the greenest buildings on the planet. It's LEED certified, and it is phenomenally beautiful. And and all of that is a true testament to kind of Daniel and Catherine's vision and what the town did to embrace it over the next few years. Yeah, you don't have to have your town destroyed in order for this to work either. But we should also no. add, <laughs> we 
We should also add that was a that's a very Republican town that otherwise might have been suspicious of all this, you know, green stuff. And you you talk about how they overcame how they overcame that. But let's go back to some of the principles. What is location envy and why is it so important? Location envy is really important because it's what attracts the dreamers and the innovators. And location envy is essentially the emotional belief that you would be more successful if you were based in some other location. So, for example, if I say Nashville, you'd say it's the blank capital of the world. Douglas, I know you know this because you read the book. Well, and I've been there recently. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, it's a great city. So it's the country music capital of the world. Now, country because it's the country music capital of the world, and if you want to be in country music, there's only one place you're going to move. That emotional belief that you will be more successful in country music if you were in Nashville than Atlanta, that is location envy. Mm-hmm. That there there's no real reason that you are going to be guaranteed more success in Nashville than anywhere else. It's just a real core belief. And what I found in all of these towns is that they've they've done a really good job of propagating location envy, this idea that even if you're going to be a quilter, uh, if you're going to start a new business, you should be in Hamilton, Missouri. Or if you're going to be in the orthopedics industry, you've got to be in Warsaw, Indiana. If you're going to make Greek yogurt, you could do it in California, but it's not the Greek yogurt capital of the world. It's more successful in Batavia, and that's where you've got to be. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the three-step process that visionaries use to build their economies from the inside out. Yeah, so most, I mean, from an economic development standpoint, what's interesting about what I found in the visionary approach, which was essentially, instead of trying to attract new businesses to town and then try to keep them, visionaries were focused on building successful you know, businesses in town. They were, they wanted to grow other successful businesses in a micro cluster, in a very small industry in their town first. Then they wanted to leverage the successes in their town to attract new people. So that's get them. And then the final step was keep them. How can I make sure that there's a ready and able workforce, that they've got the right kind of infrastructure? That's kind of the bigger question that, that needs more of the community involvement. You need to get city council and nonprofits and and you know the kind of the the economic engine humming to make sure you can keep people in town you need to get educational institutions involved so there's the three step approach is really simple grow the existing businesses around a micro micro cluster attract more businesses using location envy to to follow in the successful footsteps of the people who are already based there and then keep them by actually getting the right kinds of partnerships together and ensure that there's a a, a long term plan for fueling this this cluster mm-hmm. and and it, for, for the listeners' benefit, I, I don't think Andrew dreamed this up because there's a lot of data and stories explaining how this has happened in place after place after place. Can you say a little bit more about what a microcluster is? Yeah, sure. So – uh, a guy named Michael Port, uh, Michael Porter, sorry, wrote a. Michael Porter also wrote a great book, but but a different guy, Michael Porter, uh, is a is a Harvard guy who wrote the some great books about clustering, and and you can think of any industry as a cluster. So um, you could you know medical device manufacturing, that's a cluster. A micro cluster is the smaller pieces of a giant cluster. So in Warsaw, Indiana, because they're the orthopedic device manufacturing capital. 
that would mean they're a microcluster underneath the cluster of medical device manufacturing. And what I found was that the deeper these the 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 claim that these cities staked or these these business leaders you know propagated down that cluster tree essentially the more successful they were so for example like Elkhart Indiana is the RV capital of the world the recreational vehicle capital of the world they're not the they didn't try to be the car capital of the world you know and and compete with Detroit they didn't water it down essentially they are the recreational vehicle capital of the world and as a result an entire supply chain of of suppliers and and you know vendors and even transportation experts and stuff have showed up to fuel that economy and they all have expertise in the microcluster of recreational vehicles not boats they're not trying to be everything so that's kind of a key is really honing in on a microcluster like if you're going to be the onion capital of the world you should also be the onion soup capital of the world. You know, keep it tight, but but make sure there's a, a deep supply chain you can you can leverage. Well, and that's a point I really wanted the listener to take away was this whole supply chain reaction concept. And that is that the closer your claim is to the raw material, the lower the impact is on the economy. Can you can you explain yes. can you explain that a little bit more? So, you know, when I first realized that, hey, look, you know, these these capitals of the world or the capital of America, you know, if you go to the garlic capital of America, I thought I should see the same kind of economic impact as the RV capital of the world. And when I went to Gilroy, California, it's a nice, cute little town, which is the garlic capital of the world. They didn't have this vibrant economy that I expected. And it's because they're too close to the raw material. There aren't, you know, when you have something like RVs, right? recreational vehicles that take everyone from people that are making diesel engines and chassis and they're also making refrigerators and upholsters and accountants and marketers that have to come together to bring one RV to market, that's when you have a really healthy uh, a claim that fuels an entire economy. When you're just the garlic capital of the world, all you have is a bunch of garlic farms, the people who staff those farms, and this is great, they have some employee base, but then you have some truckers who take all the garlic and take it somewhere else to be processed. And that's the end of your supply chain. So, you know, you can take a raw claim like the garlic capital of the world, but you've got to actually then, you know, take the next step to build the supply chain constantly further and further away from the raw material to find the the value in the entire kind of economic development model as I saw it when I traveled around. Yeah, and there's another concept you talked about which, which will help people understand if they're doing it right, and that's uh, revenue recycling. Can you explain what that yeah. concept is? So revenue recycling is, is, for me, it's a really funny thing. You know, you might feel like you have a lot of cash flowing through your town or your city. You know, if if the if the if Betty who works at the hairdresser, uh, takes your $5 for your haircut and walks down the street and buys groceries from Bob, uh, then Bob takes the, the money that you, you know, from his paycheck that you contributed for buying the groceries and goes down the street to the dentist, Jerry, to get his tooth fixed. And then Jerry goes to the gas station to fill up with gas and then goes back to the hairdresser. All of a sudden, you can see pretty quickly that most towns and cities have the same revenue pumping through it. And that's revenue recycling. These towns with a claim are really good at injecting outside revenue. So, you know, Warsaw, Indiana has 
uh, I think it's thirty billion. No, sorry, it's eleven billion dollars a year in revenue from outside of the the town pumping into that economy every year. That's really the opposite of revenue recycling. <laughs> it's a cash infusion that comes from somewhere else, and the towns with great claims are really leveraging that. So even the RV capital of the world, El- Elkhart, they sell those RVs all over the country and all over the world, and that's where the money comes from. That's where the new infusion of capital comes comes from to stop revenue recycling. So you're looking for businesses that ship their goods or provide services that are outside of your community. Those are the most profitable micro clusters. And the further you go from the supply chain, you know, down the supply chain, the more successful it is. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what the law of the origin story is? This was one of the most important takeaways I had from the book. Yeah, I think especially for marketers, you know, what I found in every city I went to is that yes, they had a great visionary. Yes, they had targeted a micro cluster, but they also were telling these amazingly, amazingly emotional origin stories. And Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which is the hit record capital of the world, is a place that tells a great origin story. The origin story has to be emotional. It has to own a corner of your mind. And storytelling is good at that. It's it's an easy way for people to uh, create location envy by by proving that there's no better place in the world to do this kind of business than Nashville, if it's country music, or you know, the Grand Old Opry is there. Why did it get started there? That's the origin story. And and in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the hit record capital of the world, the origin story is a Native American myth about a singing princess who sings every day at the the, the banks of the Tennessee River because she's so sad she lost her lover. And and the reason you can create music in Muscle Shoals, Alabama that you could not create anywhere else in the world is this myth, this singing princess that you, inspires you to find a new sound. And and if you go look at Muscle Shoals, Alabama and, and look at the, the people that have come into studios like Fame Studios there in Muscle Shoals, you will be blown away by the caliber of talent that flew from London, for goodness sakes, to go record in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and it's, it's, it's that story that made it work. Yeah, where they're almost saying, well, how can we not <laughs> be there? That's right. Why can we not go to, you know, look, Aretha Franklin was actually having trouble putting out a hit single. She didn't have one until a Capitol Records executive said, look, we can either drop Aretha Franklin or why don't we send her to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where they say there's some myth that that finds these people a sound and let's give it a shot. And sure enough, she came to that studio because of the myth. Why not go to Muscle Shoals and record a song? Because if it's a hit record, we won. And she did. She hit a hit, knocked it out of the park with her first recorded song in Muscle Shoals. And that's what made the Queen of Soul. And it's interesting, the origin story, you talk about Hamilton, Ohio, where they mm. were starting to get, uh, I mean, they, they'd been a big manufacturing place and they started to, to die off. I'm, 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 I'm skipping over some of the details, but they then got a big, uh, well, a relatively good shot in the arm from Procter & Gamble on a particular right. packaging thing, which is still kind of secret, a packaging project, you know, capital investment, yeah. all that type of thing. And then, I don't know, this, this may have been a client of yours, where they went back and realized that they actually had an origin story related to packaging. Can you just say a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so, you know, what Hamilton, Ohio realized was that their future could be defined by their past in a really innovative way if you looked for a story that supported the new, you know, P&G investment from, from, for this new packaging innovation. And when they went back and looked at patents that were filed in Hamilton, Ohio in the late 1800s and early 1900s when it was at its peak of industrial might, they all of a sudden found these amazing stories. Uh, they, they found out that every soda can you've ever drank out of owes that seam at the top to an, an invention that came out of Hamilton, Ohio, a packaging innovation that never would have existed without that town in the, in the late 1800s. There's also an amazing woman, one of the first women to ever file patents under her own name came from Hamilton, Ohio, and there were all sorts of packaging for canned fruits and vegetables that she was doing there. Her name's Mary something. Just a genius innovator. Uh, there, there even, you know, paint cans and cereal boxes with that wax coating on it would not exist without Hamilton, Ohio. So now you can see that there's an emotional story you can build around the reason that that Hamilton, Ohio is the packaging innovation capital of the world. It's it's been there for a hundred years. We just lost sight of it for forty of them, and now it's back with PNG's uh, big investment in influx. Mm-hmm. Now there, that's one of many stories you talk about. But I don't know what the I can't remember what the situation was with Hamilton. But it's it, there's there's a lot of. Um, Sort of, uh, if you think of these situations as golf balls sitting on a tee, mm-hmm. they're all teed up, but yet, uh, like the the quick quilting, the, I don't, I got the sense yeah. that that community, the the officials are just letting yeah, it sit they, there. They're not embracing they're it. They're just letting it sit. Yeah, one of the problems in a lot of towns is there's a failure on the community's part to really commit to the claim. And, you know, there are a variety of reasons. In Hamilton, Missouri, uh, which not not to be confused with Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton, Missouri <laughs> right. is the quick quilting capital of the world. And and Jenny Doan has built a huge industry there that's, that's doing great. But a lot of the town thinks it's silly and it's kind of quirky and we don't want to be known as the quick quilting capital. That's dumb. But it's also and, and the number Hamilton, one thing that's pulling people in even more than the, that's uh, right. the museum. That's like, that's right. More than the museums or anything else in that town, Jenny Doan is attracting 50,000 people to visit that town a year. <laughs> She's single-handedly revitalizing the town. And, and you know, I guess at the end of the day, Hamilton, Ohio is, is a little slower to the uptake. Their opportunity is right there. The, the claim is teed up. All they have to do is really embrace it and, and, you know, take the next necessary steps, which just include telling other people that, that they are the packaging innovation capital of the world. So everybody's a little gun shy because they feel like they're taking a big risk. But look, you know, in the research we did, we found that there's essentially a $2.9 billion difference between similar towns. So you can take a town with a claim and a very similar town without a claim and compare the economic impact on an annual basis, and the average is about $3 billion of, of money pumping through that economy. I don't, what do you have to lose at this point? You know, look, if the claim is wrong, that's all right. Try another claim. There's no love lost. Uh, but but uh, I, you know I'm excited to see towns like Hamilton, Ohio, really embrace it and take the next step. And we'll see. Hopefully, the next year they'll make a big impact. Well, after reading about him like that, I think all the people in Hamilton, uh, Missouri, are going, "Ooh, no, oh, we better get on the bandwagon." Well, this, this guy's kind of beating us up back. in his book. Oh, they did. They, yeah. Well, they did. They invited me back. I was just there a few weeks ago. So you know they're making progress and and they're they're revitalizing their effort. But again, it's I, I think the the. I think there's no time like the present. I mean, 
Greensburg, Kansas did it in two weeks after a giant tornado. Like, what is what are they waiting for in in Hamilton? You know, nothing. I just do it. This is the kind of thing that frustrates me because it could make a huge impact. And and I have I have all the confidence in the world that they'll get there. Just I just wish they'd get there now. Yeah, well, you know, inertia is one of the most powerful forces. That's true on the earth. Yes. And the biggest yes. competition, I think, is the status quo. So that's so true. If readers took only one thing away from the book, which isn't fair, what would you hope it would be? <laughs> I think I want every reader, whether you read the book or not, to start going around your town or your city. I don't care if you live in the largest city in the world or the smallest town on the planet. I want you to start asking people, what is our town or city known for? And I want you to just start listening to the answers. And I also want you to ask those people to fill in the blank. If we were the blank capital of the world, what would that blank be filled in with? And I want you to hear the disparity between the two answers because you'll see how amazingly powerful this kind of simple marketing can be in reframing people's perspective on the value your town or city adds in a global economy. And and I don't care what you do, I would give it a shot. Especially if you're a marketer, you'll see just an amazing array of answers to those questions that you'll be really intrigued. Those two questions, I should add, are the ones you asked everyone in researching the book. You mentioned that at the beginning. That's true. Can you just, for the listener's benefit, say what those two questions are again, because you're really clear in the book. That's how you did it. Yes. So I went to every town and I stopped at the visitor center and I asked them two questions in succession. The first one was, what is this town known for? And you'd get lots and lots of variety of answers, usually not very compelling ones. And I list the types of answers I got in the book, actually. And then the second follow-up question would be, if you were going to fill in the blank in the following sentence, what would you fill it in with? You know, our town, whatever it is, is the blank capital of the world. And this one forces people to think, and they came up with the most amazing answers. I was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is a beautiful little town, actually. And I, I asked the visitor center, what is your town known for? And they immediately said, well, we used to be an oil, uh, a steel. steel town. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're trying to be a university town. And, you know, I said, that's great. I went to the, the old steel thing. It's kind of cool. And then I said, fill in the blank. We are the blank capital of the world. And she didn't even miss a beat. She just said, oh, we're the peeps capital of the world. You know those, oh, that's <laughs> right, that's you know those right. Easter candies? Yeah, so you, you know, you'll all of a sudden find these amazing things and you'll see the energy in people's eyes. So g- give it a shot. Ask those two questions and feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear the answers if, yeah. you, if you do start asking. So, Andrew, are there any recent marketing books that you would recommend to the listeners? Yes, I'm going to give you an odd one because it's not actually a marketing book, but I've I've loved reading it and applying the lessons to marketing. So the book is actually a book my mother gave me for Christmas last year that I keep rereading. I've loved it so much. It's called Mastermind. Think like Sherlock Holmes. And it's by a woman named Maria Kornikova, who's like a a psychologist and psychoanalyst. And the book is an amazing dissection of how to observe and understand things around you in the context of Sherlock Holmes. And and I read it and completely read the book as a marketer with this marketing lens. And it's really shaped the way I look at other people's marketing and even inquire about or observe, uh, you know, when I when I'm with clients or potential clients, what kind of marketing activities they're doing. It's been unbelievably helpful. And it's an odd book for a marketer to read. So give it a shot. It's, it's a really fun read, especially if you like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, 
I, if you mentioned Sherlock Holmes, I believe you're were required by law to mention Scott Monty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. You know what? I find not mistaken. You're not the first person to recommend that book, but we'll make Is sure. That to, right? Yeah, oh, we'll good. make sure to put a link in there. Now, the next question I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Another author brought up your book, and the question is: Are there any marketing books you're looking forward to reading? Yes, there are two. Uh, so I, I've been looking forward to Jay Bear is a is a great friend of mine, but he's also a great book promoter, and he's been promoting Hug Your Haters, his next book for I don't know, feels like a year. I cannot wait to get my hands on Hug Your Haters. Like he's really good at building anticipation for his projects. And the other one uh, you brought up just before we we started the podcast, but Scott Stratton's Unselling. Scott is an amazing speaker. He's a really fun and talented guy, and the unbrand that he's built is great. So I'm excited to read on selling. That's on my list for sure. Oh, super. Yeah, he's coming up. And Jay Bear's going to be coming up. We're going to interview him so, oh, that good. The, so that publishes just about the time his book Hug Your Haters comes out. Wow. Hug Your Haters. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, there's apparently quite a bit of very interesting research behind it. So yeah, uh, that'll be one of the big ones in, in 2016. When for I asked sure. that question of another author, some guy named Polizzi, Oh, he wrote yeah. a he he's in this part of this book writing fad where they put ink <laughs> at the end of the name and his yes. book was called uh, obviously he stole this from content him, content ink <laughs> which was a fantastic book and completely different from epic content marketing but he mentioned yeah. yours so um, oh, there funny. you go well, that's good yeah that's yeah. good I've already read content ink and it is a great book for entrepreneurs out there it's a great book yeah it's a real practical. Well, it's nicely done. Yeah. So how can listeners best find out more about you and your book? Uh, you can find out more about Town Inc. at townincbook.com. Uh, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter at TPL Drew, which TPL was the old agency Tipping Point Labs Drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three years later, I still haven't gotten around to f- f- like rewriting my Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, let's see. You can also find me at akadrewdavis.com. Um, and uh, yeah, the, Twitter's the easiest place. If you're on Twitter or not, you can even find my updates and, and e- find my email address through there. So uh, so yeah, that's, those are the easy ones. And is the AKA Davis the one where we're going to, people can go and see where you're going to be speaking next? Yes. Yeah. AKA drewdavis.com. You can find out my speaking schedule for 2016 and I'm off the road for a month, which is nice, but I'll be back on the road, uh, you know, shortly. Great. Uh, final quote from the book. If you're going to become something to someone, you must commit. If you're going to attract the dreamers and the innovators, you must commit, commit to a claim. A town with a claim is vastly more successful than a town without one. The name of the book is Town Inc. Grow Your Business, Save Your Town, Leave Your Legacy. The author is Andrew Davis. Andrew, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Douglas. This has been awesome. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.